0: Hi, I'm Jess and welcome to the Diversity Project podcast. The Diversity Project was founded in early 2016 when a group of leaders in the investment and savings profession decided to take action to accelerate progress towards a more inclusive culture within the industry. We started this podcast because we wanted to provide a platform for people from all walks of life to share their journeys and how they've navigated their way to where they are now really hoping to encourage people to join the industry or inspire those already in it to be able to achieve their goals. Today, I'll be speaking to Baroness Helena Morrissey, Chair of the Diversity Project, Founder of the 30% Club, and one of the city's most recognisable figures. Helena, a philosophy graduate, has over three decades of experience in the investment industry. This includes 15 years as the CEO of Newton Investment Management, where she took assets under management from 20 to 50 billion. During this time, she also chaired the Investment Association and is now a non-exec director of FTSE 100 wealth manager, St. James Place. In 2018, she published her first book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. This was described by Forbes as one of the most empowering books for women in 2018. Helena has been named one of Fortune Magazine's World's 50 Greatest Leaders, and the Financial Times 2017 Person of the Year. She was appointed a Dame in the Queen's 2017 Birthday Honours List, and last year she was appointed to the House of Lords. An excellent example of combining work and family life, Helena has done all of the above whilst raising nine children with her husband Richard. We discuss how she got into the industry. And dig a bit deeper into her various positions. We discussed why she made certain decisions along the way and there really is some valuable practical advice. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hi Helena, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Look, I'm keen to get straight into it, Helena. Now, you've been known to say leap before you look, be open to possibilities, willing to explore and bold in your ambition. Think big, start small, but start now. So look, Sam, keen to explore how you've navigated your journey within the asset management industry and I guess how taking your own advice has led you to to where you
1: are now. Thank you. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to sharing some, some anecdotes that hopefully don't get me into too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I'd love to start with young Helena.
0: You know, sort of where were you born? What were you like as a child? And sort of a bit more detail.
1: Well, actually, I was born in the north of England in Altrincham near, near Manchester. But actually, my parents moved to the south of England when I was quite small. And we ended up, I think it was quite unusual that both sets of my grandparents were, were living quite close and they were members of my extended family in a small village on the south coast until I was 10. That's where we lived. And actually it was a very, very free childhood. I had a very secure, very normal background. I one sister and, but our we would go to the beach every day instead of the park. And there's something about the sea that I've remained very, um, you know, have great affinity with it. I found it very soothing and relaxing. And we would go down to the beach every day after school, which I think had a bearing on me in some ways. I'm not quite sure how I can explain that, but I enjoyed that. And then when I was 10... My parents both worked in education, both teachers to start with, and then my dad moved to be in local government, and we moved to a little village again just south of Chichester in West Sussex. I always went to state schools, but suddenly then, of course, I was more out in the fields rather than by the beach. And you know, that sense of freedom being able to, you know, literally make one's own entertainment and roam free was was a very big part, I think, now of early influences on me.
0: Now, Helena, one thing I find interesting yet in no way surprising. You once describe yourself in your young
1: years as being a manic brownie. So when I was about seven, I think my parents signed me up, my mom signed me up for the local brownies. And I, you know, I'm just made this way. I'm sort of intrinsically competitive, but I think I'd describe myself as more competitive with myself than with other people. Actually, I just want to sort of achieve things and I I don't regard that as a particularly positive quality. It's just the way i <laughs> made. So I set about trying to get as many badges as I could, and I did all sorts <laughs> of rather unlikely things, like I, you know, got the metalworking badge and the woodworking badge. My children, I think, are more surprised these days that I got things like, you know, the domestic badges, you know, the, the cooking badges, and that sort of thing. But I ended up sort of breaking the the local or the regional record for the number of badges. I had my picture and. You know the newspaper and so forth with my arm. I mean, a little tiny arm crammed full of badges, <laughs> and it's something I reflect on from time to time. My mum unpicked all those badges from my little uniform, and I've kept them. And it's maybe you know my dad's my sorry my husband sometimes says to me, you know, you'll be free once you can sort of let go of the brownie badges. <laughs> you know, there's a so it's it's quite an interesting phenomena. You know, just a sense of trying to achieve very specific things and crossing the finishing line, and I think. it's a big generalization but I think girls and women you know like those sort of brownie badge type attainments you know Mm -hmm. objective Mm -hmm. assessments and and unfortunately careers aren't really like that it's very different once you get into the workplace you can't just pass the exam or the test to get onto the next stage but I certainly enjoyed being a manic brownie and it was a (laughs) bit of relief I think for my parents when we moved and I had to quit when I was 10 and I couldn't go on to the next stage (laughs)
0: And what was school like for you, Helena? Did you continue to think in the same way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid I was one of these sort of really annoying sounding children who, you know, nagged my dad to teach me to read when I was three and that sort of thing. And I just enjoyed learning and I still do. I enjoy, you know, just finding out about things. And I've always been pretty self-motivated like that. And, you know, my comprehensive school when I was, well not both my junior school and my senior school neither were very good schools really i have since been back to my senior school and it is a very good school now so i wish to mm-hmm. emphasize that was incredibly impressed but in terms of the attainment of students at the time it was it, it wasn't great and no one had been to oxbridge for years and years but actually again what i learned from that experience you know there were a group of us and we really spurred each other on so that my year Six of us went to Oxford and Cambridge, which, you know, after a drought for many, many years, you know, Mm -hmm. we just encouraged each other and were a bit competitive with each other. So that was quite an interesting experience to me that you could, you know, whatever the actual teaching was like at the time, you know, you could, uh, with a bit of determination and, you know, encouraging each other, you could get somewhere. So. Is this is something I'm really interested in
0: making listeners aware of. So in that situation, obviously you looked around you and it wasn't necessarily a school whereby everyone was going to Oxford. What would you say to encourage people that maybe can't, you know, look around them and see where they want to be in the place that they're at?
1: I've realised, I mean, we always talk about role models. Now important it is to have role models. And I think that can be very encouraging, but sometimes you can be your own role model. You know, if you don't see it, like, you can be that you can and I was the only one out of the six who was female it was a co-ed school uh, the others all went off to do things like maths and so forth so in some ways although we were a group and quite competitive with each other about what we wanted to achieve next we I didn't really have anyone who was doing what I was doing so I've I've realized it's a bit sad if you can't find someone to emulate but but also it doesn't hold you back I don't let it hold you back you know become you know set yourself up I'm going. I'm gonna do it myself I'm gonna do it you know, in my own way as well. You don't have to copy what's gone on before you. No, absolutely. And can I just ask on that as well, what made you want to go to Cambridge? Obviously, it made you want to study philosophy as well. Mm. So actually, my parents have met at Cambridge. My my dad was at the university. My mum was at the teacher training college at the time, which is now part of the university, but wasn't when she was there. And she was always very modest and emphasising that whenever she told people where they'd met. And I think, you know, I, I realized my parents would feel great pride if I went to Cambridge as well. And, you know, it was as simple as that, really. I, I did it partly to please them, I think. And, I've, and I felt, you know, I, I did feel that that was something that they wanted for me. And I was told from a young age, maybe this is setting one up to fail. But I, to me, it was encouraging that people said, you know, you could get there. You know, it, it, there was nothing about either the schools I was at or anything about, you know, my experiences would mean that I couldn't get to Cambridge. And that was a very, I think, having a positive message that you can achieve something is very important. Um Believing that you can well, goes a long way to actually get I feel like there. that
0: really derives from the way you were brought up, I think, from sort of everything that mm. I've seen and, and read about your past. Your parents have obviously played a big role in making you feel like you could do anything. Is that correct?
1: It is. And I think, you know, I'm one of two. I have a sister. And I sometimes people say, well, you know, do you think parents sort of put things you know drove you know their ambition your ambitions you know partly because they didn't have a son or so forth I I can't answer for them on that I actually think that they they never implied any way that my gender would hold me back and you know this was at a time obviously when there was a lot of talk about feminism and it was associated with sort of very sort of Militant approach, and often people, girls, women who went on to achieve things at that time were portrayed as you know just career women, not career and family. So, again, my parents never really implied that that was the case. And I think it's a very important way of schooling our children, and certainly something that my husband and I have you know tried to do as well with ours. You know, we can't always encourage people to do whatever their dream is because they might not be necessarily good at what they aspire to do, but encouraging (laughs) gently persuading where someone is perhaps going down a different path but starting from the point that actually you shouldn't be afraid of failure you should aim for success. I'd like to touch on the fact that you studied philosophy and ended up in the investment industry which is not the most common pathway. Uh, Would you be able to shed some light on this? So studying philosophy was slightly my rebellion you know I got to Cambridge and my parents were very happy but I Wanted to study philosophy. I just was very interested in the subject, and I'd done the double maths A level and Mm -hmm. and English. And I wanted to do something that combined both logic and you know just literature. And so I was really interested in it. My parents once cut out from the Financial Times an article that showed that philosophy graduates were the least likely to get a job after you know university. So they did try to slightly discourage me, but I was a bit determined. But actually, and people are surprised that I didn't have a sort of business background or a finance or an economics degree. But at, at that stage, you know, we're talking about now, you know, I graduated in 1987, so a long time ago. But the vast majority of people who were going off to the city had, you know, humanities degrees, certainly in my cohort. And it wasn't unusual. And the idea really, the approach taken then was that people would you know, if they had an interest in their subject, then they had achieved something studying it, then then they would apply themselves and, you know, learn what they needed to do on the job, as it were. And it's an interesting contrast to today where I think people are expected to show at least an interest, you know, and and if not take a vocational subject, then to, you know, take internships and really kind of be very, very focused on what they're going to do after university. And in some ways, I think it's a, it's a shame because I think it, It takes out some of the naturally occurring diversity of thought that you might get when you've got people from very different degree disciplines, very different experiences, very different outlooks, all coming together as graduates and genuinely sharing the job, but not actually coming at it from the same angle.
0: Absolutely. I think that leads quite well into the fact that you've got a graduate role with Schroder. So h- how did that come about?
1: So I had no idea what I wanted to do after university. And I started studying law over the long summer holidays. Cambridge does what's called a long vac term when you can take another subject, a fuse of subjects. And I didn't enjoy it. So I thought, okay, eliminate that. But friends of mine were applying to the city, mostly male friends actually. And a couple of them said, you know, you might enjoy it. You, you'd be good at it. You know, why not apply as well? So, ask, what it was had they random studied? As that. <laughs> Sorry? Sorry, can I ask what
0: had they studied, those friends that were encouraging you? Had they been from a similar so, background?
1: No, well, yeah, again, quite a mix. A couple have done history, a couple have done law, mm-hmm. I mean, one guy done English. Economics, yes, there was somebody who'd done that, but it was very mixed. And again, I think reflected the time. And so I applied and a couple of firms offered me a, a role, but I really enjoyed the people that I met at interview. I really enjoyed the interviews with Schroders. And with hindsight, that was a very important moment. I had a the first interview was a man and a woman. And, you know, the woman, you know, going back to this role model thing, you know, just seemed mm-hmm. to be really enjoying her job and spoke very, very, passionately about what she did and how she enjoyed it and that was quite inspiring for someone who absolutely had no idea what the job really entailed at that moment. I actually ran into her about a year and a half ago before coronavirus and I told her you know that she had been the person really that had got me into the city and she was only a few years older than me. I mean it's not that she was like really you know a senior but it at the time when she was doing the interview but she was happy to hit that
0: Do you think you may have been less interested if you didn't see yourself in the firm in that way, in that interview process?
1: I think it's possible. I think it was a bit lucky that there was somebody who I could, I felt I could resonate with their life and that I'm think back sometimes and think, well, if I put two men, neither of whom would seem very close to me in terms of what I might aspire to. And I, I have to say, I was very, I was pretty open-minded because I just didn't know what the future held. So I think I would have listened and reflected, but it just made the difference having someone that I could relate to. And I think it's quite an important thing now. And I personally feel it's a great shame that more women don't apply to fund management because I think, you know, I look around me and the people who are in the industry seem to really enjoy what they're doing and have uh, you know, often succeed. And I'm really keen to <laughs> encourage others, but it's very important that firms then put forward, you know, a mixed panel or make sure that people do meet women along the way of the interview process.
0: Absolutely, and it's also important that they have a plan to not only attract but retain women once they join yeah. the industry. And I think that women, more women need to see that in order to be
1: confident in
0: having this as a career.
1: Yes, that's important. You know, not just bringing them in, but making sure the culture is welcoming and that people can be themselves.
0: Exactly. Now, early in your career, you mentioned having a lucky break being selected to go to New York.
1: Can you give me a bit more insight around that? So I apparently was the only person out of 1,500 graduate applications to Schroder's who said that they didn't want to travel. And that was the personal circumstances. I was engaged to be married at the time. I thought it would be a bad start to married life to sort of swan off somewhere. So I'd written that. <laughs> but after the fifth day of the graduate training program, and so literally I joined on the Monday and I got a call from HR on the Friday. and We were in a, like a bunker, you know, underground room having our training. And I got a call saying, oh, there's an opportunity for graduate to go to New York for a couple of years. I mean, this is not just a six-week comment. And we'd like you to go. Is that OK? Because you'd put down, you didn't want to travel. So I was a little surprised. And perhaps it had been, you know, a, a, a dispatched to Australia. And I might have been a bit worried that they were trying to get rid of me. I, thought, <laughs> I shouldn't say that with your accent. But yeah. anyway, um, it's just, Not you an know, awful place. <laughs> trying to send me around the world. But actually, my circumstances had changed. And my fiance and I had sort of broken up since I'd written that application. So I was quite happy to sort of run off to New York. There is a happy ending because that same ex-fiance is now my current husband, and we've obviously got nine children. So it we got very happy ending, ending <laughs> before we got married. But it was, you know, it was a great opportunity uh, because it immediately, I mean, it was incredibly hard work. And, you know, it's a tiny office compared with Schroeder's very big office in London. I know it's been very successful in the New York business. And so it's a lot bigger now, but very small office. And so I literally you know, it was basically someone's apprentice and and I had to do, you know, everything. He was the global bond fund manager and I was, I would do everything else, you know, which was with great, a great benefit to me in early career. It meant that I really, really learned, you know, everything from operations to, you know, how to value instruments, how to write reports. I mean, there was nobody else to do all the work. So that was, you know, it was hard, but it was, it was a very good experience for me. Can
0: I ask if there was someone in that, in a similar position to what you were then in terms of going overseas did you know anyone there was this something that was going to be no I mean I was
1: it was quite scary and in all honesty i had this very sheltered upbringing really a Cambridge obviously opened my eyes a little bit but I village girl and I suddenly found myself in New York age 21 and there was a really lovely guy in the office who was there to sort of, you know, make sure I had somewhere to stay. And that was, I suppose, my mentor, if I needed some help. And he was great, but it was quite a baptism of fire in some ways. And New York at the time, I mean, this shows my age, was end of Reagan, beginning of the first Mm -hmm. Bush era. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very impoverished on the streets, a lot of homeless people and a lot of violence very close to the surface. So there were a lot of aspects of it that I found quite disconcerting but obviously it helped me to again I I learned a lot very quickly it, it was a steep learning curve in the office and it was a steep learning curve in terms of just life really.
0: Absolutely I think with that that can be the level of this this can be scary this can be challenging but it also do, do you think it sort of catapulted your career in some regards given you must have hmm. stood
1: out from people that hadn't taken that chance? Well exactly this goes back to my leaping before I looked because I think if I'd sort of thought it all through and, you know, considered some of the, again, some of the things that might go wrong, some of the experiences that I probably wasn't quite ready for. I might've not said yes, but actually I can see that this was a potentially career breakthrough for me very early on. And I was a little perplexed that I was chosen and I asked, you know, why was I chosen out of, I think it was almost 30 graduates that Schroders had taken that year. So it's a very big intake. And again, this goes back to your earlier point, Jess, that, you know, apparently out of all the graduates, I was the most mathematically qualified. And I'd obviously studied philosophy at university and, you know, just done double maths, A-levels. So it just shows it was a different era. But, you know, I have obviously no regrets about going, It really did help me really sort of, particularly around technical know-how, you know, I really, really probably learnt about five years work in two years. And also I was very inspired by the women in the office so we've as I said a very small office and there were four people running the office two men that were running the money really and two women that were running the business development so and you don't often see a 50-50 no, split um, and you know they really called the shots those women they I don't know if this was exactly the time of dynasty in Dallas but they were very like that in terms of you know big hair big sort of glossy lips <laughs> and really kind of almost stereotypical but wow you know they were just like so different from anybody that I'd ever met before and they seemed to love their life they everyone really worshipped them they were rumored to be you know the highest paid people in the whole company at the time because the business was growing unbelievably quickly and now I look back on it I think they probably had made huge personal sacrifices to get where they were one got married actually while I was there and she was in her 40s did end up having a a child and so forth, and that was, you know, wonderful. I actually went to her wedding, I think, or I went to her the other person's wedding. They both got married while I was there, now come think of it. But they were both in their 40s, and they both clearly devoted their first 20 years of post-university to just devoted to their work. And I realised that that was probably not what I wanted to to be like.
0: I guess a really interesting point there is that although you had seen people, two women follow a different pathway in terms of when they started their families. What I find really interesting is that you still went about what you wanted to do in terms of, you know, you were 25 when you had your, your first child. Um, what gave you, I guess, courage is maybe not the right word, but in terms no. of the, the career path that you wanted to follow, what made you feel confident? to Well, enough I have to, to, do I have to admit
1: that I probably never, I've never been one of these people that sort of sat down and written my career plan on a you know sheet of paper and said, well, you know, in the five years' time, I'm going to do this, 10 years' time, that, and so forth. It's evolved much more gradually or maybe slightly haphazardly. I have perhaps had a more of a sense of where I wanted to do, what I wanted to do next, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to London and was reunited with my former fiancé, <laughs> we got married, <laughs> I perhaps was a, a rather naive. I thought, you know, I, I, I thought it wouldn't matter to my career because I was working, you know, really hard. I was very committed to my job and I thought people have babies and they kind of have a career and I was the only woman in a team of 16 fixed income fund managers at the time so perhaps I should have thought this through a little bit more but it was a shock to me when I came back from maternity leave and found that I was treated differently than before and in particular that I was passed over for the first promotion and you know I'd been supposedly the high flyer gone off to New York and I had certainly carried on working very hard since I got back and my work ethic hadn't changed since I had a child I was working different hours he was in a nursery in the city and I would mm-hmm. drive in to work and take him in and you know my husband and I would sort of share the, the duties around that but then I was passed over and I asked why and they said it's because you know there's some doubt of your commitment with the baby and of course no one would say that and I wish to emphasize to anyone mm-hmm. listening that is not what the industry is like now it's it's completely obviously it's legal to be like that but also there are plenty of opportunities for people and no one takes motherhood as they might sometimes think something so we perhaps can come back to that to where we are today but anyway it was a very clear overt message to me and it was a shock and as I say perhaps I was a bit naive so you say it was a
0: shock how long after that situation did it take you to actually think okay I need to get out of this environment because I know mm. from my experience, there's a lot of back and forth and people not knowing what is right for them to do at that stage in their career. So yeah. could you just give some context around that? Sure.
1: So I didn't immediately think, oh, I know what to do. I'll, I'll get another job and I'll go somewhere where I'm appreciated. I realized that I had to make a decision about whether I was sort of put up with it or forge a different path. And I looked around me and I realized that most people who were working in the firm at the time had either been there for about seven years or about 25 years. And I thought, okay, so there is a sort of a point here where I've got to decide as well. And I'd had quite a difficult time with the first birth, you know, I'd had preeclampsia, which is quite a sort of serious thing towards the end of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, incredibly anemic, and I'd had quite a difficult pregnancy. So I was not particularly in a great physical shape either. So I did sort of slightly take it easy on myself. I didn't think, okay, I've got to decide now where I'm going. It was another almost two years until I actually started at Mutant Investment Management. So I started realizing I was not going to save the 25 years, but I didn't sort of run out the door in a fit of peak or add to my stresses around being a new mother and adjusting to that. It was also a time of great stress in the economy and we couldn't afford me not working and so forth. So I just, I bided my time a little bit and then got a call from a search firm that were are looking for a, you know, a junior fixed income manager at Newton. That was just a great opportunity for me, but I didn't, I think when you encounter a setback as all of us will, whatever the circumstances, ideally, I think you don't sort of make a snap decision and rush out at that moment, but actually think carefully about what's the best thing to do for yourself. You know, be selfish. Think about what it is for you. Don't feel, oh, it must be that I'm not good enough, you know. I think in this day and age, it's
0: extremely important advice because I know um, especially with tools such as you know LinkedIn and the, the number of headhunters out there for example there are always going to be opportunities presented to you so I think it's really important to understand what it is to have a thought process behind that and really make a decision because it's the right decision mm. did, did you get lots of headhunters I mean, I'm curious to understand at that point was it something that was happening quite no often? not particularly
1: no, I got, one, I got a few and often they were things that were just not interesting at all. And I think when people are in that stage, when they've perhaps got five years experience or thereabouts under their belt, I think that is a time when hopefully, you know, if you've, especially if you haven't been complete hermit, you know, you have to slightly work the crowd sometimes, but if you've got yourself out there a little bit, then you would hope to maybe get a few opportunities. And I think LinkedIn is a brilliant way of doing that as well. And a lot of people obviously are on that, even if they're not looking for a job. I'm not just encouraging people to be disloyal or to be always changing their role. I think it's very important, though, to be owning your career and sort of managing your career and not thinking, oh, I just work really hard and someone will notice and tap me on the shoulder and promote me or give me a pay rise. Mm -hmm. So I learned from that first experience that you have to be a a little bit strategic about it and, Mm -hmm. you know, not just wait for it to happen.
0: Can I ask on that? So obviously there was a number of reasons why you joined Newton, but you mentioned initially the investment process was built around people having multiple perspectives. Can you shine some more light around that? And is, is that one of the major reasons of joining?
1: Yes. I mean, one of the main reasons was because I met Stuart Newton in the interview. He actually interviewed me, which, uh, you know, was amazing for me at that time. I mean, I was in a situation where nobody seemed to notice I existed before in the previous firm. And then suddenly the CEO and the founder of the, actually he might not have been the CEO at the time, but the founder of the firm Mm -hmm. actually took trouble to interview me. And he explained the investment process and he had this mantra that no one has a monopoly on great ideas and genuinely tried to construct a, a team where people would bring different ideas, different thought processes have different ways of looking at the world have different degree disciplines he actually said to me you know it was something about me you know that I was a mother was was not just fine actually he thought that gave me some different perspectives on life on how I'd assess things and it was way in advance of any current fashion of uh, diversity of, of anything including diversity of thought but that was the basically the, the premise on which he built a very successful business and a very successful investment process. And he just did not believe in lowest common denominator thinking, you know, different ideas, you, you kind of find a compromise. He believed in thrashing it out until you kind of got someone persuaded about a stronger idea, which was very, very exciting to me. So, yeah, it was largely down to him that I joined. Oh,
0: one thing I was really curious about, you mentioned he became a mentor after a year I mean how does that happen usually you know a founder of a firm someone like yourself that was still quite junior let's very junior like, how right? did, yeah, yeah
1: how, how did that come about so towards the end of my first year at Newton I went to maternity leave to have my second child which perhaps doesn't sound a very thought sensible <laughs> approach to the new <laughs> job but actually again it wasn't discouraged certainly my son was by then three and the HR director had told me at interview, he said, you know, Helena, you don't have to work here for two years before we give you enhanced maternity. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I didn't feel in any way discouraged to go ahead and have a second child. And while I was away, my boss, who was also a woman, she resigned. And it was just the two of us running the bonds at Newton at the time. And Stuart said to me, don't worry, Helena, we'll appoint a fixed income guru and you don't have to worry about anything, you know, come back and we'll be look after. And I said to him, could I look after the funds for a few months and just to, you know, give me a chance to, and he didn't know me well at that point. And he said, yes. And a lot of, again, sometimes people don't ask for something and and he said, yes, but on one condition and that is that you'll have to report into me at every day about five o'clock every day. Um, Yeah. So I'd have to kind of, he had, he sat on the open floor, but he also had a little office. And so I would go into his office at five o'clock and we would go through any of my thinking, any market developments, any upcoming trades that I was planning on doing. But, of course, this was an amazing opportunity for me because he was a fabulous investor, very much a lateral thinker, so would be a real challenger about any kind of conventional thinking. And also then this actually became a mentoring relationship. And so he was never a formal mentor. I sat down and we kind of had a program or anything. But every day, and also he insisted, there were two conditions, actually. I also had to sit next to him in the office. So I had real close proximity and he would sort of hear what I was thinking as I chatted to other people across the desk and so forth. So it was a great opportunity. And, you know, after the three months, he never mentioned hiring anybody and just let me carry on. And then we sort of hired some people under me. So that it was fantastic. You know, there are bosses like that. It's unfortunately not always the case and a lot of people get managed by somebody who's not that interested in them but I'm one of the things we're trying to do with the diversity project is to sort of elevate the importance of really great line management so people take you know people are line managers who take a real interest in the people that they're managing
0: what about the value in if you can't find that in your line manager or finding a mentor whether it's internally or externally mm. what would be your
1: advice on that So I'm a great fan of mentoring. Some people say, oh, it's much better to have a sponsor. And the only difference seems to be, or the the difference seems to be that people who are someone's sponsor, they will champion their career. And effectively, Stuart was like that to me as well. So I think sometimes it's a little bit marginal and I wouldn't get too hung up. I would take the opportunity, if you have the chance, to have a mentor or to have a sponsor, because basically having somebody who can be a sounding board, who Perhaps isn't your manager, but can give you more neutral, impartial advice. Who has your best interests at heart? Who wants you to succeed? This is all really valuable, and particularly, I'd say, in the mid-career stage, when particularly if women have children and maybe feeling a little bit less confident about their ability at work. Obviously, they have no reason to, but just it can take you know an adjustment in your life has happened, and it can be a little tricky. And having someone to guide you through that just build your confidence sometimes or to give you the nudge to apply for next role and support you, with setbacks, Mm -hmm. you know, we all have setbacks and I hope that I have conveyed that already in terms of what happened to me in my early career, but it carries on, you know, there isn't just like any straight line career and how we react. I don't know if this is a
0: setback, but I know in terms of, your role and how it progressed at Newton before being offered CEO. It was actually a CIO position that you were speaking on and you almost got a number of people into a room and asked their opinion. Can you shed some light on that for people as well? Because I think that's a really interesting thing that's not highlighted.
1: So when Newton was acquired by Mellon, the American institution, we lost quite a few people in the management team after the, the really for financial reasons, as people sort of had... It was an exit strategy in some ways for some people. And overnight, when we lost the chief investment officer, you know, I was approached by Mellon for that role. And I thought I was in the running for it. I hope that doesn't sound (laughs) big-headed, but I was one of four people running the strategy. And I really wanted that role. And I thought I could do it well. So I was really happy to be invited to do it. But the next day, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Oh, we don't think you're quite right for that role. And we've told that to the parent company. And I was a little taken aback again. I was, I thought I had a mandate. I thought people would be supportive of me doing it. And I realized I'd made a misjudgment over that. So I asked, I wanted to understand more. And I was also racing through my mind was, you know, what am I going to do? It's just kind of embarrassing. I'm going to have to leave. And so I just wanted people to spend a bit of time with me, talking me through it. And then I could make an informed decision. And Mm -hmm. it turned out that they felt quite understandably that it would be better to have someone with a more equities background because most of the assets mm-hmm. in the firm were equities and I I had never run equities. So I got that. So that was good to know. It was sort of something less personal and more around my experience. I kicked myself for not realizing <laughs> that that would be an issue. But, you know, I listened and, and learned from that. And then one of them piped out, you know, it's it's been very courageous of Helena to Ask us to have this discussion. And actually, over the years, she's shown leadership qualities. Why don't we ask that she becomes the chief executive officer? And previously, Mellon had suggested one of their American executives, who had a number of other roles, would also take on the CEO role of Newton. So, so that seemed a possibility. So they said, Would that work, Eleanor, I said, You know, I was obviously, this was all going very quickly. <laughs> I was yeah. suddenly having this prospect, and I honestly didn't know what the CEO did, but I said, well, I guess so. I really cared about Newton. I really felt we were offering something to our clients. Mm -hmm. It was very valuable. And if I had left, I'd have wanted to join somewhere like Newton. So it seemed a bit of a lifeline to me. And so I went over to where the parent company had flown in from the States Mm -hmm. and set up camp and said, you know, there's a way forward. And people have suggested that perhaps I become the CEO. And my colleague, Jeff, take on the CIO role. And they said, okay, that's great. Yes. Go ahead. So that was how I became the CEO. So another lesson, you know, there are there are non-textbook paths to the top. And obviously I didn't have any management training. I I didn't know how to you know run a business and so forth. So it was quite tricky and I made a lot of mistakes early on. I'll be the first to admit that. But making mistakes makes you learn pretty quickly. And <laughs> I also realized that I couldn't lead in terms of sort of being grand ballot or top dog or lording it over Mm -hmm. people I was just like first among equals and and my job was to make sure we kind of the show was on the road and we worked out together what we were going to do next as a firm so it was an exciting opportunity another leaping before I look
0: Mm -hmm. but no
1: harm done it's a common theme
0: (laughs) (laughs) with that so I know this we briefly touched on this earlier after your Schroeder's time but read that it was reported to former colleague who has mentioned you were never short of job offers while obviously in this role at Newton what made you want to stay there for such a long period of time when obviously other Mm. companies are very interested in the value that you could add there what made you want to stay what was your thought process for other people that may be
1: in a similar situation? For me it broke down into different sort of phases of my time there and firstly of course it was the recovery phase as the firm was you know I was recovering from the takeover and seeing departures and so forth and then so that was took about four years actually it was quite a long haul and then the next phase was a real growth phase and very so there was this turnaround phase and a real exciting growth phase then we hit the financial crisis mm-hmm. so then there was the kind of you know managing through crisis phase and it wasn't really until the last few years where I felt I had plateaued in terms of what I could learn and remember I was felt very much that I needed to earn my credibility as a CEO at the beginning because I'd sort of come from the desk and come from nowhere really. Perhaps it was that I was just happy there and enjoying it as well. I felt very fulfilled in terms of what I was doing. Of course, I was also having quite a few other children, but that wasn't, I didn't make me feel trapped. I genuinely just wanted to stay there until I felt I had done what I could do at the firm. There was, there was one, I think there was one role that tempted me at one stage, but. It's kind of hard to price someone out of a job when they're really enjoying what they're doing. So there you go.
0: I think that's a real positive because I think a lot of what we see right now is the grass is always greener. Whereas I think it is important to sometimes think, you know, I'm happy. There is opportunity here. and Where's this business going? What can I do here with this firm? I think that's certainly
1: overlooked. But it's a long term business as well. You know, actually it's less suitable really probably for people who want to job hot every sort of year or something perhaps I overdid it by saying 15 years but I say I I was enjoying it and felt there was more to achieve
0: Helena something we haven't touched on too much is combining family and a successful career Uh, with not one or two but nine children how did you find juggling this
1: so there were definitely moments, you know, if anyone's listening to this who has children and things so I can't manage with even you know, two or something, I definitely had moments when it, it felt too much. And I just want to reassure everybody that I think that's just part of being a mother and part of being a human being. We all have those moments. And certainly when I became CEO of Newton, I was only 35 and I had five children and the youngest were I'd just turned one, two and three. So it was a very, very intense, almost overwhelmingly intense period in my life but I have had the support of my husband who gave up full-time work when we had our fourth child and went freelance. He was a journalist and then gradually sort of stopped doing paid work and became full-time house husband or father. He prefers full-time dad (laughs) then and I don't blame him and I realize people say well then that's lucky for you but I don't have that situation and I do think every family has to find their own balance. They have to find their own way of Making it work. And these days, what I think is quite exciting, very exciting really, is that a lot of couples I know, whatever their circumstances, they almost take turns. Sometimes it's her career that's forging ahead, and then there's a bit of ebbing of that, and then his career, or else they both do four days a week, one day at home, or make up their own arrangements. And there is more opportunity to do that now. And I think one of the upsides from the terrible disaster that coronavirus has been is obviously more expectation that we will work more remotely more from home and perhaps more opportunity for both men and women to juggle both home and work but certainly there were good times and bad my sort of frenetic phase when my children were very young and I was still very much a rookie CEO
0: of course that makes sense I think it's just interesting to understand I guess different dynamics and from what I've seen certainly businesses are becoming more aware that they need to start looking at how to make maternity and paternity contracts more similar in order to make those decisions easier as a couple that's certainly something i've
1: noticed one of the things we're hoping to do again the diversity project the working families group is focused on shared parental leave and trying to make the financial aspects of that more equal between men and women so that at the moment you know obviously people can take shared parental leave but if it's the father they usually don't get paid as much and that obviously makes it irrational sometimes for a family to decide to take that up. So it's
0: really interesting hearing about your career at Newton in investment management. What I would like to understand next is the reasons for leaving that position, if, if you would,
1: mind. Sure. So, as you say, I had been there a very long time and I'd intimated to the parent company a couple of years before I did leave, you know, that I couldn't see myself doing it another five years it just, you know, all good things come to an end. And also I thought I had other things left in me that I wanted to do. And perhaps sometimes one has to break with the comfort zone and expand beyond the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So they started looking around and a couple of years later did appoint Annika Smits as my successor. Mm-hmm. And I then had to decide what I was going to do next. So it was it was a bit of a wrench in some ways because so much of my adult life, it was, you know, in total 22 years, I've been at Newton. And a lot of my colleagues, we had sort of grown up together effectively. I mean, we are all started as adults, but become older adults as we grew up. So I have to say, initially, going back to sort of how we managed to, if not setbacks, then sort of change, I did feel a little lost. I felt that a lot of my identity was tied up in me being the CEO of Newton. By that stage, I had launched the 30% Club. That was a very successful campaign, more so than I'd anticipated. If I'm honest, we've just announced today, it's announced that 36% women on FTSE company boards and 34% across the whole 350, which is a miracle, really. Is that where you thought it would be this quickly? No way, no. I mean, if anyone had told me, I've written in the Hampton Alexander report that's just come out, that actually I would have struggled to believe it. I mean, at the time, only it was less than 10% women on the, the 350 boards and over 150 of those boards were all male and now there are none. So I got to say that has surpassed my expectations and given me great confidence and hope that change is possible in a broader context. So I I was known for other things as well as Newton, but I still felt a bit lost and unsure of myself. And I think that's quite common, actually, from talking to friends who've been associated with one big thing or one job and then decide for, you know, just life life is short, you know, if you always do the same thing you'll never know what you could have achieved in other areas so I'm glad that it all sort of you know entered a new phase but initially I'd say it took me at least six months if not a year to really feel that I hadn't sort of gone backwards so you
0: know, this is a term often thrown around at the moment but I think imposter syndrome comes to mind for me if you've been sort of in role in a firm for that amount of time thinking about going to another firm where there's you know a a whole different culture just feeling like you can have as big of an impact do you think that played on your mind?
1: Yeah I think I mean it sort of makes us sound a bit sad doesn't it that so many of us confess to imposter Mm. syndrome but I think it's also good to share these experiences and vulnerabilities because I think sometimes people think that they're the only ones. They might read about it, but think, oh, well, that's still just in books or, you know, nobody I know uh, who's, and a lot of people have said to me over the years, oh, it's easy for you, you know, so successful or something. But obviously, I don't feel that way all the time. And the thing is, as you go sort of higher up in a career, then in some ways, this, you know, we got further to fall and people get more judgmental and, you know, you feel that the stakes are higher. So I don't, mean to sound complaining about that it's just more the facts mm-hmm. so I think you can feel more vulnerable and I certainly say initially you know wasn't sure what I wanted to do next and you know in all honesty I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to say in the industry because I felt again I'd put in I'd put in the years mm-hmm. and it was quite open to what I might do next eventually
0: you mentioned me open and potentially not staying in the industry, but your next role was with Elgin. So how did that yeah. come about? Clearly you decided to stay in the industry, but in a slightly different
1: career path. Right. Yeah, so I had been working at the Investment Association. So I was chair of the Investment Association for three years. And one of the board members was a guy called Mark Zinkler, who was at the time CEO of Legal General Investment Management. And he and I got chatting. Actually, I told him first of anybody that I was going to be leaving Newton because I really, we always saw eye to eye on so many issues and I really felt we shared the same values. And he said to me, would you come and work Elgem? And I said, well, you know, it it sort of depends what, what the role would be. And he invited me in to talk and this was, you know, something that so appealed to me that Elgem has been so fantastically successful as a firm in terms of institutional asset management. Most of the clients have huge pension funds and so forth but they're also thinking of setting up a more direct to customer d2c platform and one of my unfulfilled ambitions and it remains that way is to try to really democratize investing to try and encourage more people to look after their own financial well-being you don't have to be wealthy you know this is actually trying to get to lots of people not wealthy people Mm -hmm. and he said would you like to come and try to set that up which uh, to me was like a you know, a dream job. And it was really running a business, small business within the larger one, different culture at the firm, but I was still had a, like a boutique feel in what I was Mm -hmm. doing. And I did enjoy that, but Mark left after, I can't remember exactly how long after I joined a year or so, went back Mm -hmm. to America. And really the firm had so many things it was doing and being so successful in so many areas that it just wasn't emphasizing this particular opportunity and actually ended up selling that business to Fidelity. So, okay. you know, these things don't always work out. And I certainly made some very good friends there who I'm mm-hmm. still very much in touch with and admire the firm hugely. I mean, I think it's done a huge amount on ESG, environmental, social and governance, and I've been a real market leader there. So it, it was a diversity project. You still work mm-hmm. with them as a firm. As yes, well, exactly. Yeah. You know, they're, they're very great members. Colette Cumberford, who is mm-hmm. the head of DNI, as, a, as she and I both speaking at the same international women's event that we're doing with the, moving ahead in the diversity project and you know I have great admiration so just I think again sometimes especially if you spend a very long time in one place again it's not uncommon to then the next move not quite work out and actually what it showed me was I probably wanted to go plural and now do a few things and I got asked to be a member of the House of Lords and I'm enjoying that and I'm serving on a board I still have some things that I some i'm writing another book actually so i'm enjoying doing multiple things and actually with coronavirus i'm so will this be follow on from a good time to be a girl or is it a different book it's a different book so it's not an update it's called style and substance and actually it's about career advice for women that I think we don't get a lot of the time so it is about some of it is about how to present yourself not just how you look but how you sound how you persuade how you create the right perception of yourself I think a lot of the time we're given a lot of, you know, technical support, but actually not Mm -hmm. some of the sort of how to work the crowd (laughs) points. So this will come out in a bit of a plug here, October in 2021. So I'm busily writing it now. No,
0: we we love a plug. And that actually leads me on to the next point I wanted to mention. So I'm certainly a follower of your Instagram, which I think sounds (laughs) like it, it is in line with the book you're writing. I know, you know, only almost a year ago, I think you only had just under 2,000 followers now it's getting up to 8,000 I mean this is obviously something that is a, a shift in your career being a fashion influencer uh, well I'm not sure so far is that? <laughs> but, but anyway
1: um I just feel what I what I learned was a lot of the talks I did around the first book, good time to be a girl it ended up you when know, we got to the Q&A and people often said you know I would often have a sort of my speaker dress on you know of a brightly colored Shift dress and so forth. And they would say, Look, I just don't know how to dress in the office. I just feel there's no one to ask on that sort of thing. It seems frivolous. It seems embarrassing. How do we even get started? And how do we create a brand? You know, how do we? Because often the difference between a good career and a great career is having a really strong personal brand. Mm -hmm. So I started the career dressing Instagram account as it was originally anyway, just because I thought, Oh, well, you know, I've got a bit of time. Why didn't I just sort of share some thoughts every day about? what I'm wearing. I started off trying to sort of day in the life of my dress kind of thing. And that got a bit, sometimes I didn't have a very exciting day Mm -hmm. to share with anybody. So I dropped that bit. But so now it's become a little bit more thought for the day. I try to be, if I'm honest, just the dress or whatever I'm wearing is more of a kind of prompt for Mm -hmm. some thoughts as well about careers, about the pandemic, about family life, about
0: you about know, it being spring
1: today. About it as being it spring today, bad. yes. So it's more that springboard, literally, for how to keep in contact. And I found what's been wonderful about it for me personally is it's a hugely positive um platform. I'm on Twitter, and that's a little more contentious. Instagram, <laughs> yes. I've, I've just got this wonderful group of women who are so engaged, and every day I look forward to the conversation. So I get as much out of it as they do. Uh, last Friday, I did a a humiliating post of me, disco dancing, which I'm still...
0: I may have seen that. Post,
1: <laughs> <laughs> posted that one. But um it's a bit of fun, too. I mean, it's a little bit... This is I'm trying to say, look, there's... In fact, I interviewed somebody for the book who... Asahi Pompeii is her name. She's the most senior black woman at Goldman Sachs. And she dresses beautifully. And I asked her which she might be interviewed for. It, and she I was very gracious about it. And she said, look... Why can't we talk lipstick and capital markets? She said, you know, she men talk about football and their jobs. It mm-hmm. doesn't demean us, it's just part of who we are. And actually, my hope, and it was, you know, a bit early with the first book, but you know, is that the environment is such that we can be more ourselves, you know, that we can, we don't have to dress in a pinstripe trouser suit as I did when I first started working in New York. I literally. I had a pinstripe transit suit i have pictures to breathe it. <laughs> cnn did a thing on me at one stage i think it was cnn and said well do you have a photograph and i sort of i i sent them the <laughs> photograph and they were like whoa yeah it's quite scary <laughs> well uh, I, I can say you've certainly come a, a long way a monte and a bow i'm a, i'm completely embracing <laughs> it <itself>. now.
0: <laughs> oh, I honestly I just think it's we touched on role models earlier. I I think you are an incredible role model for so many, not only young women, but just people in the industry that just want
1: to find a place where they can be themselves and be successful. So look, thank you so so oh, much. I hope thank so. And I yeah my parting shot to people would be the asset management industry doesn't have a you know fantastic reputation for being interesting for people who are fascinating working it but actually the other thing is that you get measured on results and that's what's been a real, real blessing in my career that actually through all that time when I had lots of small children, my results spoke for themselves. And so I really want to encourage my part, My final words would be, you know, if you're thinking about a career in asset management and you're not sure, you might think you have to be an actuary or an accountant or just into maths all the time. There are lots of different people. I'm not a complete unique case here and we would welcome you applying and hope that you will be encouraged to join us. Thank you so much for listening. Now
0: you can find Baroness Helena Morrissey on LinkedIn and I've attached a link to her page in the show notes. Or you can go follow her on Instagram, the one we discussed, which is Helena Morrissey, all one word. If you enjoyed our conversation, please like and hit subscribe. And we look forward to being back in your ears shortly with another successful investment professional.